we're live, pal. Welcome to another episode of the Peach and Stew Podcast. You can check us out on the Twitter at Peach, P-I-E-S-C-H underscore Stewcast. And uh, remember to like, rate us, uh, subscribe uh, on Spotify and iTunes. We're, we're looking to get some numbers up going into the fall when we got a lot of fun stuff planned once this quarantine ends. Um, and it will end. It will end. Um, but tonight, uh, we're just going to jump right into it because we got one of the young and up and coming people in the horse racing industry. He's a known commodity. He's a name. He's getting out there. He is grinding. He is, he's producing. Um, and that is bloodstock agent, Phil Hager. Uh, wonderful dude. Uh, the face that runs the place over at Taproot Bloodstock, and you can check them out. Their their website's going to be attached on our Twitter. Uh, dude, they, I'll tell you, this guy, just talking with him, the enthusiasm seeps through, you know, and everything he's doing. He he knows what he's doing. He he understands everything, and he produces. Um, he He does pick winners. He picks a sound horse. And for the common person out there, this is the guy that goes out there and where me and you might look at a horse and say, oh, you know, that's a big animal. It probably runs fast. He can tell you what, you know, he can dial in. He can give you a lot more. Um, And I hope you enjoy. I talked to him a little bit on the phone a couple weeks ago trying to set this up, and I learned a ton. So I can't wait for this interview. I think you're going to learn a ton, too. So we'll jump right into it, and I'll catch you later. Hey, Phil, how are you? Good. What's going on? Ah, oh, same old, same old, man. Uh, let's good. jump right into it, if okay. you're ready. Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, I gave you a very, a very warm introduction, which you didn't hear, uh, <laughs> but hopefully you will when, when this airs. Um, can you tell uh, everybody kind of how you who you are, how you got into the game? Sure. Um, yeah. So my name is Phil Hager. Um, I was born into the game. I, my parents were breeders. Uh, my dad had a farm that he managed uh, out in Paris uh, that he basically took over from his family um, and managed that for some time. My mom, uh, when I was young, worked, worked for Overbrook. Um, back kind of when Stormcat was there and, and obviously it was a, um, well, old machine at the time, you know, they were cranking out lots of really nice horses. And, um, so that was neat. And then she, I guess when I was in middle school, she took the job managing the office at Castleton Lions. Um, and she's been there ever since. So both parents were involved. Um, they did they really... did they come from uh, like your grandparents were they in the game or or is it just because they grew up in the area they just kind of migrated to the industry? Yeah, so my my dad uh his aunt and uncle he was very close with and uh his uncle was kind of like a cattle a livestock guy and um when the old his farm was Idlauer farm is what he what he uh, bred under and it was um, they bought like the part of the old iron, um, Idlauer farm on old Frankfurt back, I think in the sixties or seventies. 
and then they moved out to Paris later on. So he he basically worked for them for a while, and then when they passed away, they left the farm to him. So okay, that, that's kind of how um, it came down the family a little bit. And then my mom, uh, no, she her father was a dentist, and you know just more more so kind of married into it. Um, but um, but anyways, and then. So obviously I grew up working for them some, and um, then I went and worked uh, at the track for Bill Mott. I worked for Prepping Yearlings at Gainesway. Uh, I worked for Crestwood for about eight years. Um, I did internship with Fabian Pipton, kind of done a little bit of everything. And then um, a couple of years ago, I started my own company, Taproot Bloodstock. Um, basically just to kind of uh, work for a handful of clients that I had been kind of building. And so I basically represent all of their interests as far as buying horses and managing their racing careers or breeding careers and um, mating suggestions. Um, so a lo- little bit of everything. Now, I, and I encourage everybody who uh, wants more information, Tapper, you, you have a fantastic website set up that's very – it get it's very upfront and very forward about mm-hmm. what you do, all the services you provide. Some, uh, you know, Carrick, who I would love. Well, eventually, I have a question about, um, uh-huh. and we'll circle back to. But can you can you just for the lay person that's out there listening, can you kind of describe what a bloodstock agent is? It sounds like you're like half Dexter, like you got it. <laughs> like, like say you got a kill room in your basement and somebody, yeah. you know somebody around the block you know mistreated you what what is a bloodstock agent sure so bloodstock is just kind of like an all-encompassing phrase for horses at different ages of their lives and um or just i mean just like horses in general like a group of horses so um it so bloodstock agents can do a lot of different things and a lot of different bloodstock agents might specialize in certain areas. Um, but it can be from, you know, planning a mating to, um, and seeing that foal basically, uh, being born and then, you know, helping manage that foal as far as like where you would sell it or where you would race it. Um, it can also be on the other side of it. So you see these foals or these yearlings or two-year-olds at an auction And you go and pick them out for your client to buy them and uh, whether their intended purpose is to race or resell or whatever. You're basically kind of like a a broker for horses um, and and everything that comes along with that. So um, me personally, I kind of tend to focus a little more on um, younger stock and buying them to race uh, or buying them to resell. Um, and then I do quite a bit of like matings and breeding, uh, man, you know, as far as managing, um, people's mares, as far as, uh, who you breed them to, who you, uh, what you do with the foals and when you pick to sell them or when you pick to race them, you know, things like that. Um, some people focus more on like private racehorse acquisitions or stallion syndications or things like that. And these are all things I could do as well. I just, Typically, my, my the area I focus the most on is um, public auction, though. And and I'm assuming that goes hand in hand with with like you said, all the specialties you you can you have the ability to do. 
just going mm-hmm. to the sale and sizing up uh, a horse's pedigree and uh, and confirming it is it, it's really your your favorite thing maybe or you're like your your guilty pleasure kind of <laughs> is, is that fair yeah no i think um so one i think we talked about this a while back but like one thing that's really important i think for a bloodstock agent is to have hands-on experience with horses and and picking a horse or planning a mating it's you know you look at a lot of um data as far as what works what doesn't work things like that but it, it it's way more i think of a, of an art form and you you have to be able to draw off of previous experience or previous horses you've seen or known about you know things like that and so um yeah i'd say very much so like you kind of have certain feelings about a pedigree you know because you've seen horses out of that pedigree you've watched them run and you know what they did you know what they looked like um you do that you use that for a lot of different things whether you're at a sale planning a mating um whatever so i think as you go you know there was somebody that told me one time like looking at horses is almost kind of like putting pennies in a piggy bank you know you kind of like the more horses you look at and the more experiences you've seen or you've been around those horses you kind of uh your knowledge kind of grows uh, just like your piggy bank would grow so i always thought that was a pretty cool quote as far as um you know over time you kind of become uh more knowledgeable about yeah all the horses and pedigrees and things like that and then you can use that to to uh, your advantage yeah and so and so breaking down um this particular subset of of what a bloodstock agent does when you arrive to a sale um Mm -hmm. can you kind of describe like how that process works for you like how you're going about when you're, because uh, I know you just got back from Ocala. Um, mm-hmm. Am I saying it right? Is it Ocala? Is it Ocala? I I pronounce it Ocala, but I'm sure there's. <laughs> it's like anything else. I'm sure they. Yeah. It's Florida. It it gets weird. Um, <laughs> but yeah, can you kind of describe that process? Sure. So the most recent sale I came back from was a two-year-old in training sale. Um, so that sale, you know, I go down about, a, um, I go down to probably about a day before the breeze show starts. And the breeze show is basically where all the horses will work out publicly for an audience. Um, and therefore you can assess how they move, uh, you know, how they work, how fast they go, you know, things like that. And then, um, so for that type of sale, I usually work it with a team. So we would have a racetrack clocker that we hire to be there. He would clock them, you know, for their work. And then he would also clock clock their gallop out um, so that we can, you know, I I wouldn't say we buy them just off the clocker, but it's nice to kind of have a point of reference as far as how they compared to some of these other horses. And then, you know, what we're looking for is the total picture of, how they move. Um, I sit basically in the back part of the track, like on the opposite side by the chute. So basically I can see all the horses come on, all the horses go off. I can note any equipment that they might be wearing that's out of the ordinary. I can hear them breathe, you know, like if I hear them making a bad noise, I can kind of make a note about that. Um, you know, if their breathing is obstructed or something like that. Um, I see their energy level when they gallop out. Um, there's lots of stuff you can see back there. So it's 
to me, it's really important to kind of see them from there. And then we also have someone that's up kind of by the finish line. So he gets to see them finish their work, you know, how they move by, by that and everything. So, and then basically from there, we've created a bunch of data so we can make a bunch of notes about each horse and we come up with a short list of the ones that impressed us. And then we will go look at them physically in the coming days at the barn before they sell. So uh, if they match up physically for what we're looking for, um, we would, you know, take them to the next step, which is we would shortlist them. And then we'd start talking to owners about the horses that we found, try to kind of figure out which horses fit which owners as far as what they're looking for and which trainers they're going to or circuit they're racing on. And then from there, we would have them vetted uh, where they would look at the x-rays. They would look at the, the uh, scope, which is just kind of checking their throat airway. Um, and any other thing that that might notice that might be off or something they should mention. And then if they pass all those tests, then usually we'll set a budget for those horses and try to bid on them and buy them. So in a nutshell, that's kind of the two-year-old sale. Um, you know, yearling sales, you're kind of more going off of what they look like physically because they won't have them on the track. So you're kind of just trying to buy a good physical, trying to match it up with the pedigree um, based on how much you can afford and what their goals are. Um, and then, you know, like broodmare, uh, breeding stock sales, you're looking a lot at the pedigree because you're, you're trying to breed something out of that mare. Um, and then you'll just hope, you know, try to buy as much physical as you can too. And, um, so I guess you take different approaches based on what you're buying at different sales, but that's kind of how we, we would go about it. Yeah. And, and going off what you just kind of were getting at there, uh, and you may have already kind of answered this part, but, pedigree i mean a lot of people that are into the game uh they you know they'll look at pedigree how much is that a be-all end-all uh for you in in uh the one-year-old yearling versus a two-year-old versus um even buying a private private uh purchase even sure i mean pedigree is very important um you see a lot of I mean, there's a reason that certain pedigrees are stronger than others. And whether that's because, you know, they're just better looking individuals or bigger, stronger, faster types, or sometimes it can be like underlying, you know, as far as they're, they've just got the will to win, you know, or they're, they've got a stronger constitution and just kind of tough, you know? And uh, so, but there is something, underlying there in that pedigree that shows why this family tends to throw better runners, you know? And, um, so it is very important. I mean, I think that, um, pedigree for me, like if I'm at a yearling sale, um, especially probably because usually I'm, I'm a physical first type of person. Like I, I tend to try to buy the best physical I can. And then after, you know, I've made my short list of physicals, then it's just about how much pedigree I can afford for my budget. Um, so if somebody tells you, just go buy me the best horse, you know, uh, then you're looking at a good physical, you're buying a really nice pedigree, good sire, uh, good vetting, all that stuff. But that obviously costs a lot of money. And so sometimes you kind of have to 
maybe take a chance on a little lesser pedigree or maybe you buy you know maybe a horse that's by like an unknown stallion but it's got a good female pedigree like good female lineage um and and everything like that so there's ways there's angles where you can cut your price down um but i i do try to buy as much pedigree as i can um but i would say i'm physical first driven um can you so so i get what you mean by that um when when i was starting to you know look into the ownership aspect uh I, you, you know, you see everybody puts out there, oh, I've got a, a Pharaoh. Oh, I've got a mm-hmm. uh, into mischief. Oh, and, and you, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, how important is the sire? And can you speak to how important uh, the dam, uh, the mother uh, would be to uh, a horse that you're looking at buying? Um, are there differences in what they put into their offspring or how does that, how does that kind of like for a layman just kind of boil it down? Sure. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the easiest way to answer that would be it's 50, 50, you're getting 50% from each, but, um, I kind of do think that some people put too much emphasis in the sire, um, because you'll see, you know, certain sires sell very well at a sale and certain other ones don't. But if you think about it, like um, a really good stallion might have 10% stakes winners. So if he's got a hundred foals out there, there's only going to be 10 of them. And, you know, there might be 60 of them that sell great at a sale, but only 10 of those are going to be, you know, the, the, the stakes winners. So I do think that most stallions will come up with at least one, a few good horses, you know, um, some are better than other, others, obviously. Yeah. Me personally, I would take fit female pedigree over, over sire power all day. Um, I just think, like I said before, you know, was, I think some of that comes through and you can kind of see that in families. Um, and so I think, yeah. And then you'll see certain families are known for certain things, you know, they might be very speedy. Uh, maybe they're kind of more classic distance type, maybe they're turfy or, you know, early two-year-old types, or you do see that happen quite a bit um, where you'll see multiple horses out of a family be kind of like that. And so therefore they're kind of, you would guess that a, a foal in front of you might kind of be the same, or you'd have a guess that way um certain sires are also kind of the same way so um you know like an end of mischief for instance who's a very hot sire right now they're known for being you know pretty early pretty fast Uh, a lot of them are dirt you know i mean so you kind of tend to know what you have um there and and there's always going to be outliers like you might have a end of mischief out of a turfy family and you're looking at it and you're kind of like well what is this going to be, <laughs> you know, yeah. but like you, you take all your little data points and then you kind of come up with an um, opinion of what you think is in front of you. And that's kind of where the, you're using all that data, but it's also kind of an art form and judgment call based on what your gut feeling about a, about a horse is. You know, I know we didn't talk about this part, but I kind of, I, I kind of want to probe this one question at you. Um, sure. Since I'm looking at a picture of them. Mm-hmm. I've got a big picture of Secretariat in front of me. I'm looking at him. Mm-hmm. So I all to me the greatest horse ever. Uh, mm-hmm. I love him. 
Um, yeah. Now, I always heard that, like, he wasn't the, like, even though he's the Michael Jordan of horse racing, uh-huh. not really producing, like, the greatest. Is that a true statement or is that is that somewhat false? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously a horse like that has huge expectations, you know, when they go to stud. And so, therefore, yeah, you would call him a disappointment. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, that's part of the hard part about guessing stallions is, you know, certain ones will surprise you. Like you'd have, for example, another horse that Claiborne stood, uh, Warfront, for example, when he went to stud, I think he started out at 10,000 or 7,500. And, you know, he's a good that, Yeah, he, he, he did okay. Yeah, yeah, no, he's been a hell of a stallion, and, um, you know, uh, he was a good racehorse, he just wasn't quite, obviously, what Secretariat was, you know, so it's it's hard to kind of predict sometimes, uh, Tappet is another good example, kind of started off at a low fee, and obviously became a top-class sire uh, in the mischief, we were just talking about the same thing, um, but then you get, you know, horses that win the derby, or win you know, uh, triple crown or, you know, whatever. And they end up not being good stallions. So it, it has to do with a lot of things. I mean, in my opinion, it's, um, race record is only one piece of that. Um, and you see stallions that were so, so race horses, but maybe had a huge pedigree or something in their pedigree just really happens to work with the, the population, you know, um, as far as like maybe there's some really cool inbreeding that that stallion brings into the gene pool um and there's a lot of mares with this specific relative in their pedigree and when that matches up it just creates this really good mating that kind of produces these really good horses so i mean there's there's a lot of variables um it's definitely very hard to become one of the top stallions there's only so many that really get to that point sure um and so pedigree, which you touched on, is is part of it. And and I know I've seen the the books that you know you'll carry around that has every horse and the pedigree and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting sheets if you ever want to go read them. Um, but when you're looking at the horse, what what are some things that you're looking for when you've got that pedigree part of the puzzle already filled in? Sure. So um, again, like you're going to have some sales where you have clients that are looking for a specific type of horse. Um, and so therefore that might change your criteria a little bit, but in general, if you just go to a sale and, and you've got multiple orders and, um, what I'm looking for is just horses that I like. And I look for, um, on first, first look, I'll usually look for balance, um, first, which is, um, I just want the horse to be well balanced, you know, not too heavy in front or not, you know, a horse that's doesn't have enough hip behind compared to the rest of the body, you know, want them to be kind of evenly balanced throughout. Um, I, I like good angles. Um, you know, I like them to have a good 45 degree angle or more to their shoulder. Um, good enough size. I mean, I, I don't mind buying a horse that's a little smaller or maybe a little bigger, but I don't want a horse that's huge and I don't usually want a horse that's tiny. Um, now, I mean, you'll see outliers to every, every rule, you know, or everything that we might 
pass up on. I mean, there's going to be good horses that you never would have bought, <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. yearling and that's yeah. just, that's yeah. just how it is. Um, and that's part of what makes the game a great, uh, a lot of fun because, you know, there always are going to be those outliers or those cheap purchases that end up winning the Derby or something. So, um, but overall, I mean, I think what I'm trying to do is minimize risk for people. So that's what they pay me to do. I'm, I'm trying to put them in a situation where they can get lucky and that they're going to have less risk that it could go wrong. I mean, if I, if I buy them a horse with some big confirmational flaws, um, I mean, yes, the horse could go on and be great, but if that horse doesn't become great or doesn't make it to the track, it's, I'm going to feel pretty bad because, um, you know, I knew that going in. So I'm trying to give owners a best chance to, to get there. So I do that by looking at their confirmation. I also watch them walk, see how they move um, from side to side. So you can kind of see how much ground they cover, how efficient they might look. And then I watch them walk to me and away from me. So you kind of see what their legs look like as far as if they're correct or um, if they, you know, make a lot of action, if they have like offset joints or things like that that could um, lead to more injury prone horses, things like that. So um, once I kind of like see all those things, then they would um, either make my short list or they wouldn't. And then from there, it would just kind of, I usually go back and look at them again. And um, one thing I didn't talk about, which is also big is just, um, this is kind of hard to explain, but try if you've been around enough good horses, like how they act, um, you know, you can kind of, it sounds weird to say it, like you're kind of trying to read their mind a little bit, but like, you know, you can tell that with people too. Like you can tell, judge a person, like if they're a class person or not, um, you can kind of tell that a little bit with horses too, based on how they're handling all the, everything around them, how they're um, acting to their, or, um, talk how they're with with their handler um you know seeing them go in and out of the barn how they handle that how they handle just the whole sales scene in general because it can be a lot to throw at them um i mean at the end of the day they they are athletes and they are yeah some some athletes are odell beckham and and some Mm -hmm. are you know i don't know maybe a hockey player like chris pronger (laughs) yeah (laughs) No, exactly. So I think you're just trying to kind of figure out who that horse is and um, based on how they look and how they're acting and all like that. And then that's kind of where the art form comes in. You just have to go with what your gut is about how strongly you feel about a horse or not. Um, And uh, usually, you know, if you, if you feel pretty strongly about a horse um, and and I've been doing this for long enough, like it's usually, a pretty good indicator that you ought to kind of leave that horse on or tell someone about it or, you know, you know, it's always ended up, I won't say it works out all the time, but it's, you, you usually feel pretty good about those horses. Well, so. one time you were uh, feeling pretty good about a horse. It cost me a lot of money one day. Uh, <laughs> talk about um, one of your big successes and in, in uh, the articles up on blood horse, you can uh, search for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it Carrick. Um, yeah. Can you describe how, how, like how that process kind of came to you and, and what about that horse stood out and, and being part of the team that, that brought that horse in and eventual, uh, Arlington, uh, winner. Yeah. 
he's an interesting horse. So he um, he definitely a team effort. Um, that was for Donegal Racing, Jerry Crawford, and and he has a pretty unique way of buying horses. Um, but I think it just goes to show, like as long as you kind of have a business plan, you kind of stick to it, and you are smart about it you're going to have good results, uh, you know, just got to kind of be patient and do it. So Jerry's been doing it a long time and his, his is definitely unique because it's a little backwards to the way I would approach a sale. Like I mentioned earlier, um, he actually, um, I think he and his son actually developed an algorithm based on, um, horses that can stay like that can get two turns because their whole goal is to get, two turn horses and, you know, ideally would like to have derby, derby horses. And they've, you know, they've definitely done that. Um, been at the derby a few times. And, um, but Carrick was interesting because he like, so this is the case where he basically has three or four people like me, you know, they're out looking at the horses that are on his pedigree list based on this algorithm. And then he gets opinions from all, all, you know, however many people, four or five people, and then he formulates a decision from there. And then they look at genetic testing, heart scores, things like that. They, they have to jump through a lot of hoops for Jerry to buy a horse. But, wow. you know, this is a horse where, like, physically, like, he was a really, really nice horse. Um, but he did have a knee that was pretty offset. And, um, and his vetting, I want to say he had, like, some sesamoiditis or basically just some immaturity of the bone in his ankles. And, um, and so it's something that would reduce his price because there's more risk there for both of those things. And Jerry basically sets a price based on, you know, what he thinks the horse is worth on the algorithm and what we said and everything else. And so in, he ended up buying this horse for 75,000 and the horse had a, a nice pedigree. Um, well, I've been James Causeway, correct? Mm-hmm. By John's Causeway. Yeah. And um, anyways, yeah, he became a grade one winner, you know, and obviously he had an interesting uh, racing career because he started out like for maiden claiming, actually starting out and uh, worked his way up and then obviously won a a big grade one up at Arlington. Um, So that was pretty, pretty cool. But um, I forget if he beat a a, a Aiden. O'Brien horse or Chad Brown horse? I forget. He might be. Yeah, I know he beat, he, beat both of them, but like mm-hmm. he came up uh, right at the end and, and nipped them. Yeah, um, the horse was um, analyze it. I think was okay, his name. Okay, analyze He's, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a like the heavy favorite. I'm pretty sure in that race. Uh, he was. I mean, very nice horse by the point of entry. Um, but yeah, it was it was pretty exciting because he was. I was at, up at Saratoga actually and watching it and. Um, I just told some people around me that were friends that, you know, the horse had been training really well. And I think, I can't remember what he went off at maybe. I think I, 25 so, to one or four, no, 40 to I, one or I, something. I'm pretty sure. Cause I remember this cause I, I was alive to uh, quite a bit and this will uh-huh. teach everybody out there. Just don't bet against Donegal racing. It's just, <laughs> it's just a bad life proposition. You yeah. It was, um, yeah, that was but yeah, pretty I think fun. the horse was like 30, I want to say 31 to one. Um, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I know I hit, I know I bet it. Um, so that was pretty, well, so, it was a pretty good payday, but yeah, well, I, bet, I bet you had a pretty good night drinks, drinks, uh, yeah. in the house for you. So that's a pretty yeah. good deal. 
no, it was it was fun. So and all the the whole team was up there anyway, so it was kind of cool. Yeah, that's know, awesome. We, yeah. Uh, anyways, when you when you go to a sale, uh, what is uh, you know you're going over, you're doing your homework weeks in advance, months in advance, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, you're kind of you know running around like a crazy person trying mm-hmm. to look at everything um what is what's the like moment where you just go who this is why i'm here or like that that load just kind of goes away and you can enjoy your your time your your moment. yeah i think um i really enjoy the mornings um like whether I'm at the sale or at the track, I mean, cause it's a little quieter at that time. It's like the sun's just coming up or it's still dark. Um, you know, at the racetrack, it's awesome. I mean, especially like if you're at a good track, oh, yeah. like Saratoga or, you know, wherever, and you kind of can, it's, I don't know, it's just a quieter time of the day and you're kind of just around the horses and the people, you know, that are working with them. And that's definitely, um, probably one of my favorite things and sail you know the same thing when you first get started is when the sun usually is just coming up so that's when we start looking at horses it'd be you know 7 30 or whatever it is and um i don't know just that time of day is always kind of makes you know, it just it, a pretty time of day yeah it doesn't sound like it sucks i will no. <laughs> we'll give you that it, it sounds like a pretty it's, good deal it's very challenging but it's also very rewarding when things go well i mean you it's anyone that tells you that's going to get into the game or um, has been in the game whatever they talk about it being the highest highs and lowest lows and it's cliche like everyone says it but it definitely is the case you go through a lot of bad news and bad days and, and things like that and but i think it part of what is so like meaningful about the sport is because it is so hard to be great that you really do appreciate it when you do come up with a great horse. Um, and I think that's the, you know, that's the sporting aspect of it. So yeah. um, anyways, it's, it's very, it can be very rewarding and, and the horses are just like, you know, it's, they're amazing animals. So just getting to spend time around them, I think is one of the best things. And you, you tend to kind of see that with owners too, like especially new owners that have, not been around them as much and then they kind of you know buy their first horse and they get to come see it train in the morning it's you can tell it's kind of a um a life-changing moment for them you know kid in the candy store type thing yeah exactly yeah you see you see it with uh a lot of partnerships i'm lucky enough to be a part of a couple and Mm -hmm. you see the folks show up and it's like you know they could own 1% and uh, it's like, you know, their child's, uh, you know, first baseball game or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that's also, I think that hits another point is part of what I do and part of some of what we almost kind of are helping people like realize a dream or, or we're, we're providing them with this experience. So um, that's also another part where I can kind of say like, wow, this is, I'm so happy I'm doing this because you see that look on their faces or you see how excited they get when their horse is running down the stretch or, you know, things like that. I mean, it makes it all for sure worthwhile because it's, it's pretty neat, those moments. So. 
Now, now we were talking about how Ocala, Ocala, what have you. You just <laughs> went there, and with with everything going on, mm-hmm. did you find anything amiss at the sale? Did you notice anything um, different? And and how was how was that trip overall for you? Uh, just summing it up. Yeah, it was a really weird timing. I mean, because when we talked on on the way down, I mean, things were just starting to kind of be talked about, you know, I I mean, look, we've we've known about coronavirus and stuff like that for what, probably a couple months now, as far as when it had started to kind of pick cases would pop up. But when things were really starting to get bad, I was already there, you know, we were um, obviously everything was kind of hour by hour and day by day. We didn't know if they were going to cancel the sale, if they were going to, you know, everything was kind of uncertainty. So um, I tried to kind of just work and then go back to my hotel and work more. And (laughs) I didn't really go out and do much. Um, Quarantining before the quarantine. There you go. So, I mean, I think that, you know, it was weird. I mean, we were like in our own little bubble a little bit, but I, I will say that OBS did a, a great job with regards to just how they handled everything, but also everything was kind of above and beyond as far as like cleaning. They had people opening doors for you, so you didn't have to, you know, open That's doors. Awesome. And yeah, I mean, there's hand soap at all the counters. I mean, there was, you know, they, were, they definitely were prepared um, and kind of got through it. You know, it was... Um, definitely the market itself was obviously a little depressed because it just always can be that way when there's a bunch of uncertainty and but i have um, to imagine that that for folks such as yourself that's that's almost kind of a boon in that you can make some phone calls to because because you are well respected uh mm-hmm. bloodstock has uh some equity value mm-hmm. in the industry um and it just in your short time in starting it, uh, it, it was it like, oh, okay, well, I've I've got plenty of phone calls I can make, and and folks will, I mean, you're selling them a steal. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I'm I'm always uh, I'm not a very hard sell person, so like I don't um, I don't go to a sale without knowing maybe I have some orders, and then I try to kind of push horses on people. That that makes but sense. but I think like um, and that's just my style it's whether it's right or wrong but like i think that um i think that when i went down there i probably had two to three orders and after certain people started to figure out that i was there or you know word of mouth spread or whatever and they knew me or they knew someone that knew me then i got like a bunch more phone calls so i ended up probably having seven to eight orders i probably i got five horses bought um that's that's a good trip yeah so it was productive I was happy with what we bought. I thought we got good value. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was a beneficial trip, you know, to, I'm glad we went too because now a lot of these two-year-old sales are being postponed. So, I mean, we might kind of have a jump on uh, not only people buying, but also we might have some more ready-made two-year-olds that can run a little earlier where some of these other ones still have to go through a sale. So um, yeah, and this is this is a public service announcement to the good folks at Timonium. Just mm-hmm. just push it back. Push it back. <laughs> Me and Phil want to go. Yeah, We're busy in May. <laughs> we want to go. Just push it back. All right. I know. I saw the Ocala sales. Uh, 
Because they pushed that right back after, today too, yeah. Yeah, right after I talked to you, mm-hmm. like the next day I read in Bloodstock, they're like, oh yeah, they pushed it back to May 26, 27. I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, well. No, the COVID's running wild. <laughs> like, you know, no. October would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, um. Well, it's it's kind of like everything else. I mean, all all the businesses out there kind of dealing with the same thing and just trying to kind of make everything work the best we can, you know, even though it's different from what it normally is. And and uh, so we'll we'll all figure it out and get through it. But um, but you know, people have to have avenues to sell horses, and people have to be able to go buy them, and um, you know, so I mean, it'll it'll all work itself out. I'm sure it will. Yeah, and, and kind of compounding on that, uh, can you talk about how how vital? Um, I mean, this is the horse racing industry from from yourself uh, with all the care that you still take with with uh, the athletes, the equine athletes, mm-hmm. to the hot walkers at the barn, to the folks that are you know putting the hay in the in the barrels for the the horses to eat and all that mm-hmm. good stuff can you talk about how vital it is to um keep the keep the show going on i don't want to sound like i'm uh you know at stratmon uh oak uh you know leo sure. jordan belfort style you know the show goes on <laughs> but uh uh can you talk about that a little bit because i think it's getting lost in in everything going on yeah. So, I mean, as, as it pertains to, um, this kind of pandemic, I guess you call it, um, you know, it's important for the horses cause horses are creatures of habit. And, um, you know, if you just have to pull them out of training or things like that, they're just, they don't deal with that. Well, like they kind of like a routine. They like, they've gotten used to the people that are around them every day or, you know, riders getting on them, going to the track. Um, they, they're kind of creatures of habit and you're kind of best to kind of keep them in those routines. So obviously it starts there with the horses. Um, but you know, the people, same thing. I mean, a lot of these people, that's their job. They also, you know, are very attached to these horses. Like they're kind of like family members to them. Um, and you see that a lot, like videos of grooms celebrating after horse wins, you know, things like that. And that's, I couldn't say that's any more real because i've worked with it you know those people would sleep in the same stall with the horses if they could i mean they're they're very very close to those animals so um you know that's the part of the industry that's so great because um obviously you know people see the black eye that the industry has had over the past few years but unfortunately in any business or sport or whatever there's always going to be some bad apples and unfortunately that's kind of what gets reported but um but no it's it's very important i think for everything to kind of stay on obviously right now it's a little it's a little shaky because there's only so many people or so many racetracks that are even running right now and um it's a little trickier for the trainers because you know the horses that they've gotten ready to run at keeneland now all of a sudden they can't run there so they've got to kind of figure out where they're going to run them next um Hard, hard to uh, train a horse sitting in your lazy boy. Exactly. And, um, you know, and, and it's also a unique time right now because a lot of these horses, and, well, and these trainers are down south during the winter. And April, May, 
June is kind of the time that they all migrate back north because the weather changes again. So yeah. um, this is also a little bit difficult because certain places they can't ship to right now that they normally would have shipped to. So um, it's a little bit, it throws off the pattern a little bit. It's, it's, but, you know, I know that they're doing everything they can as far as trying to kind of keep things safe and, and, you know, working with the government and, you know, things like that. So uh, everybody else, everything else will work itself out. So. Well, I'll buy that for uh, 200, Alex. Uh, <laughs> that's good. That's awesome. I know, like, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting back to Taproot, mm-hmm. um, what was, what was the kind of like, kicking the kicking the ass for you to go man you know i'm i'm branching out i'm going out on my own did you like always have that plan when you were uh you you know like you alluded to you were working for uh bill mott mm-hmm. you you were kind of getting all that kind of at crestwood getting all that info was this always the plan and where do you see taproot you know in the next few years and beyond yeah, I I think um, it's something I've always enjoyed. I mean, I've I've worked for, like for instance, I worked for David and Gordo out of college. That was my first time working like for a bloodstock agent, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and you know, I think that when when I was able to go work for Bill, um, I think I told this story to you before, but yeah. uh, basically I offered to go over. I was I was working for him in Saratoga. And I, I, the sale was going on, the yearling sale up there. And I, I asked him, you know, because normally I would stay, I would hold for the blacksmith, I'd hold for the vet. I kind of wanted to learn everything while I was there. But I asked him if I could take the afternoons off to go shortlist yearlings. And I just said, uh, you know, I'd be happy to give you a shortlist. I won't charge you anything, but I'm just curious if you liked what I put on there, you know. And he ended up um, really liking kind of what I put on there. So then he, started using me at Keeneland September and, you know, some of these other sales and uh, started introducing me to some clients and, you know, things like that. So I kind of started working for them a little bit. And then what really sealed the deal with them was um, I was down here working the Keeneland September sale and I saw a horse that I really liked. Uh, Riley was at the sale with me, Bill's son. And, uh, Anyways, I, we were trying to kind of get one of Bill's clients to buy the horse and he wasn't real interested in the pedigree, I think, or something. And um, anyways, Bill told me, you know, he's like, well, just go to go to 50,000 on the horse. And if you get it, just sign your name as agent and we'll figure it out. So I ended up buying the horse for 32,000. Um, and Bill told me later, obviously, that he, he bought it for himself, <laughs> which was um, pretty amazing that he would just kind of trust me and Riley like that, you know? So, um, anyways, he, he named the horse sight read, um, the horse, you know, was doing well in his early training and everything. And we, we got married on opening weekend of Saratoga. So like on our wedding day, Bill debuted the horse and ran him in his silks and everything. And he won by like four lengths at Saratoga and a maiden special. <laughs> that, that's a pretty good uh, wedding gift. <laughs> yeah, no, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. And, uh, Byron Hughes, that's, um, uh, Todd Fletcher's assistant, he, they had a horse in the race. He was in my wedding. So he was there with me and we, everybody was joking because he was touting the horse that, 
that they had in there. And I think we went off at 21 to one and then one, <laughs> one easy. So, uh, and Belmont wins first out once in like yeah. a blue moon. And yeah. I think he, uh, you know, I think Bill, he's gotten that reputation, but I think like he can win with, um, horses that are early, like just as well as anyone else, but it's just, I think over time people have sent him these classic distance horses and yeah, he gets a lot of, you know, and I think those aren't meant to win first time out a lot of times. And, but I don't know, like you saw over the last couple summers and everything, he's had some pretty well-meant two-year-olds debut and win early. He has, he, 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 in all honesty and all fairness, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the numbers and the percentages and what have you, you see in the forms don't reflect sure the the fact that hey he barely missed sure you know, sure it you don't get you don't it doesn't show up in in your uh your racing form for second mm-hmm. you know in that percentage so for sure but it was awesome. um kind of classic bill you know because he's a man of few words he kind of um well i called riley and was like oh you know that's awesome we were we, you know we were all excited <laughs> and, and he goes hey i gotta i gotta grab the horse here talk to bill so he hands the phone to Bill, and Bill's like, well, this colt is pretty forward. He goes, good job. Got to go. Got to go. <laughs> and that was it. So, uh, But that that obviously, that's a lot coming from him. So uh, that was good. But um, where, Just out of curiosity, where is Sight Reed now? Is he still? Is... Yeah, he, last I heard, so he did like the, um, he did like one of the Thoroughbred uh, makeover um, events and everything like that. Oh, awesome. And, yeah, and to be honest, I, I don't know exactly where he is at the moment, but I know, like, I knew the the girl that took him at the time. She sent me, like, um, some photos and everything. He was on the beach in California, and it was, yeah, it was really, really kind of <laughs> cool. I got him on my computer somewhere. So, I mean, that's a uh, obviously great thing. That Weird, you know. weird thing when you wish you were a horse. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, anyways... So but, where where is Taproot heading in the, in in your where you want to be? Sure. So um, so when I made the choice to go out on my own, uh, I had a pretty good base of clients. Like it wasn't it wasn't large, but I had you know two or three that were supportive and had been with me for a while and everything. And I just kind of figured, you know, if I actually put my name out there and say, this is what I'm doing. Cause you know what, at the time I was, I was doing stallions for Crestwood. Um, you know, I helped bring in like get stormy and some of those horses there, but I was also doing bloodstock. So it was kind of a little bit of a, you know, what do you actually do? <laughs> that type of thing, yeah. you know? And what so is it, what is it you say you do? Here? Yeah. <laughs> so when I kind of focused that in a little more and started taproot, um, Actually, we were. I was just talking with my wife today about it. How um, no, it was amazing how a lot of new opportunities opened up. Um, you know, once people kind of read about you and they see things and they, or they hear word of mouth, and then you know they they reach out to you. And I've I've kind of developed quite a nice client base since I went out on my own two years ago. And um, I've always kind of said I'd like to keep it fairly boutique. Like I I want to kind of I don't want to overstretch myself. I'd rather just work for people that I really enjoy working for and everything else kind of tends to work itself out, you know, as far as um, making a living and I'm, you know, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing and 
if I can just kind of keep doing that and working for good people and being involved with good horses, that's, that's kind of the goal for me. So. And so I, I've got to ask as we're, as we're wrapping up here, Mm -hmm. um, give me your favorite track, favorite track you like to go to either for sales or for just ambiance or what have you. And I'm, I, I'm saying it because I know you're a Saratoga guy, but you're also mm-hmm. a Keeneland guy, so I'm making you make the choice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I have to go with Keeneland because it's local. Um, but I do love Saratoga. Um, I, you know, it's it's just such a unique place. Um, and, you know, I, I recently went to Oakland. I really enjoyed it there, too. I, I, it's the first it time I've been. It looks awesome, dude. It um, looks awesome. But I'll just say, it? I mean, Oakland, the the – what sold it for me was the experience. Like they really treat people well. They, everything is cheap. I think it was like $2 to park. It was, you know, reasonable <laughs> for food and, okay. and beers and, you know, whatever. It was all just the customer experience was really good and it was packed, you know? Yeah. And so, they're always packed. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like some tracks could probably take a little bit of a, um, <laughs> take a little bit of a tip from that. But I mean, but I, there's a lot of good tracks out there, but I, I think I'd probably have to say Keeneland's my favorite just as far as I'm the most familiar with it. And it's such a pretty place. It's got the sales too. And um, so, yeah, I'd have to probably go with that. Outside of picking, picking out a horse for, for one of your um, customers or, or mm-hmm. an order that makes it to the Derby, mm-hmm. excluding that. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's some on the bucket list you want, you want to do? Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, like I said, like you said, the Derby is a huge one. So if I could, we can make it there, that'd be great. Um, Breeders' Cup races. I mean, we've already run in Breeders' Cup races, but I haven't won one yet. I'd love to be able to do that. Um, and I, I think it would be cool to be involved with a horse that goes abroad and does well too. Like, you know, somewhere like Ascot or, um, I haven't really done that yet. So that would be another, another goal I think would be neat. Um, so any, any of those would be cool. How, uh, and I know we talked about it on the phone, but, and, and I don't want to rehash too much, but mm-hmm. you, you did take a trip over there uh, a few years ago, correct? Mm-hmm. I did. Um, yeah. I went to uh, Ireland. I went to the Goffs Orby sale over there and it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, Got to go see a, a lot of nice farms over there, see some stallions. Um, we actually, we bid on a horse for one of my clients when I, when I first went on my own, he was one of the ones that kind of went with me and uh, we unfortunately got beat up pretty bad on it, <laughs> but we tried. So, uh, but it was a, it was a unique experience. I got the shadow, like a really good agent over there. Um, and so I learned a lot, you know, while I was there and, um yeah it was pretty it was pretty cool I I would like to go back I think um like I said you know most of their breeding over there is turf um so you kind of have to have the the right type of client as far as someone that wants to race on turf over there or here um you know like everything there's probably outliers there but um but you know that's that's kind of what you'd have to go for probably over there I'd say uh, aside from the turf aspect, and I know turf and dirt horses, depending on 
you know, what the horse is going to do. It's going to make you look at the horse differently. It, did you have something else that you took away from that, that it's just like completely opposite of how things are run here in the States? Um, you know, they were, they were pretty proactive about recruiting um, young agents to go there. Um, in fact, they kind of helped us as far as putting us up and, um, you know, helping us pay for flights over there and things like that. And I think they really tried to kind of sell us on their industry and, you know, they gave us a good experience as far as showing us some of the stud farms and taking us to do that and introducing us to people. And, um, so as far as like the service they provided to us and because, you know, if you think about it, like if you go over there without knowing anyone, without knowing the horses or, you know, the farms or any of that, that's that's a recipe for when good times go bad yeah you just don't really feel that comfortable and buying something there you know but if you go there and you go through it all and you meet a bunch of people and you see the horses and so now like if i went back i would feel completely comfortable going and buying a horse for someone because I've, i've kind of experienced it you know um but i think that that's a big thing because um you know sometimes you don't I think the sales companies for the most part are fairly good over here. I mean, they tend to kind of treat you well and try to kind of want you, they want you to come. They appreciate your business. They, all that type of stuff. But I do think they kind of went above and beyond over there as far as making, getting you over there because it's not easy to get someone to convince to kind of come over there and you know what I mean? It's a big trip. So, um, and actually the first time I tried to go over there, I, uh, our flight was delayed and we got, I think like caught up on the, on the plane and I ended up missing my connection over to Ireland. So the first year I actually didn't even get to go. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, so I went the second year, well, but um, good times go wrong. Yeah, exactly. So, but um, so I, I guess my last question has to be, and this one's going to be, if you thought the favorite track one stuff, mm-hmm. give me your favorite horse. Mm, that is yeah that's definitely tough um one horse that has meant a lot to me probably is get stormy um because i've i've helped in a lot of different aspects of that horse's career you know i i did nothing to help in his early stages of career but basically i cold called tom bush when the horse was running and reached out to him about uh our interest in standing him or doing something with them to stand them at Crestwood. And so I kind of started that process and I helped manage the horse as far as getting his first book of mares and things like that. And then Tom Bush and Mary Sullivan have been very supportive of, of me, not only with my new business, but kind of letting us do what we needed to do at Crestwood to get him off to a good start. And um, in fact, they, they asked me, or we talked about about going and buying some of the best get stormies so that they could race them. And, um, you know, Clyde's image was one of the first ones we bought, um, who we paid 24,000 for, and he ran second in two big grade ones. Um, really cool horse. Really. really cool yeah. Horse. He, and a huge underlay to when you, when you start looking at the forms, like a, I'm a degenerate gambler, mm-hmm. but like you can, you can tell that, I think get stormy is going to um, 
it, it, it's going to come around. It, it's mm-hmm. going to get stormy around here. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could use that one for the next commercial. Well, it's just really cool, too, because you see, like, for instance, Crestwood is a, is a place where, you know, they have a great reputation. They've been around for a long time. But they're also kind of like a um, – they're not – that's what they do for a living. You know, they're not, they're not like billionaires or millionaires that started this farm. And so therefore, you know, we're kind of survivors, you know, and so like getting a horse like that is a big deal. And um, I just remember, you know, some of these breeders would turn their nose up about breeding to them, you know, in the first few years and look at the sales statistics and things like that. And now you're getting some of the biggest racing operations and breeding operations breeding to them this year. And it's just kind of very fulfilling. So I think, so not only kind of starting the deal with him, but I got to be around him a lot while he was at Crestwood and helped get the mares to him. I helped buy some of the horses that got him kind of started. Um, you know, it's just kind of, that he's been a very uh, meaningful horse for me. So I'd have to probably say he'd be my favorite, you know. Yeah, and and it's it's a really cool horse. The The commercials that ran... Um, oh, was it last year they were running during Saratoga? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah, because um, and you were on them, weren't you? I uh, I don't know if I was. I'm not sure. Okay. I don't know if they would have put me on there. No. <laughs> uh, I just I just remember I just remember get stormy. Yeah. And it, yeah. And and like it just it burned into my mind just having it in the background on every day during the summer. I mean, uh, but a really cool horse and and mm-hmm. now now I just got to root harder for Clyde's image. Yeah. Well, we got um Clyde's image is retired now, but we do have a new horse that I bought. Oh. Okay. Um. That honestly, the reason we bought him is because he reminded me a lot of Clyde's image and. uh we paid eleven thousand for him, and he's run, he's run second in two Grade Threes so far this year. Um, his name's um, Get Smoking, and he's with Tom Bush Get as smoking. well. I think he could be, you know, knock on wood, if he stays healthy and all that, he could be a pretty good horse this year. So, and we've talked about it before. Tom Bush is really just so it's like mm-hmm. it's grossly underrated. Yeah, for how how good he is. He's just an old school horseman. I mean, he came up under some very good horses, like, I mean, sorry, trainers like Alan Jerkins and, um, you know, just as genuine as they come, he and his wife, both. I mean, like if I go down to Florida, a lot of times I'll stay with them. You know, they're, they're very close, very That's awesome. friendly people um, and can definitely train a horse. And I think two things, I think one, you know, we got, we've gotten into this, really big mega trainer phase where like people like to send horses to these guys that have 200 plus horses. And it's just uh, like, there's a reason they're getting all those horses. They're good. I mean, they really are, but a lot of these guys are really good too. And I think that for people that want to have a little more personal relationship with their trainer, uh, especially if they're guys that you only have, you know, under five horses or something like that, these guys are great options for people like that. And I think that um, the other thing with the recent, you know, FBI indictments and things like that, which obviously none of that's kind of been finalized, but I think it's a big win for guys like these that um, try to do things right always. And, um, you know, their horses should do the talking on, on just who they are alone, you know? So um, I think it's, that was a big, hopefully a big uh, turn of events for 
cleaner racing and hopefully some of these guys like Tom Bush will shine a little more because like they really are the best horsemen, you know? So. Absolutely. No, I, you said it best, man. And uh, on that note, uh, I know you probably are getting stared at by your wife. <laughs> I hope, I hope I didn't get you. in. No, no, you're fine. Totally fine. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. I'd love to catch up with you uh, mm-hmm. later um, in a, in a few months as, as you know, the, the sales start coming back. Sure. If, if you do get a, a, a window of time and just kind of talk a little bit more about, you know, what, uh, how you're doing at the sales, things you're mm-hmm. noticing and um, maybe dig a little bit deeper on some of this uh, confirmation sure. stuff. Cause we, we gave a you gave a cursory overview, but I'm sure there's going to be some questions mm-hmm. uh, to dig a little bit deeper. Sure, no, I'd be mind. happy to. And I, like I said before, I appreciate you promoting the sport, and um, it's definitely uh, definitely good if we can add more fans and and listeners that way, you know. So I appreciate all you do. Hey, man. Well, we'll we'll uh, buy each other beers uh, after Timonium <laughs> uh, with push yeah. that back. And it's yeah. not late May. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> monsters. Monsters. Alrighty. All right. You take her easy, Phil. All right. You too. Touch, Thank brother. you. Wow. What an interview. Uh, Phil Hager, everybody, head of Taproot Bloodstock, the face that runs the place. He may be number five in your program, but he's number one in your hearts. Uh, really cool dude. I, we probably could have talked a lot longer. We will talk a lot longer. He will be back on uh, in the future for more podcasts. Um, and we might do a little question and answer type thing. with. Uh, and feel free to send them in on this podcast uh, as it drops. Um, can't thank him enough. And this is, this is the kind of content I, I wanted to bring to this to these airwaves like i wanted to talk to people that you may see you may recognize the name you know they're important but i want i want to go find those folks um and and there's other interviews out there down the road that i'm trying to work out and plan with with schedules as they are and see if i can do um and and that truly would be uh that's that's my goal with this um coming up you know me and me and peace you're gonna be back at it again uh probably i think we have some nfl chat uh a mock draft we're doing a mock draft uh or something or the other he's he's been talking nonsense at me um over the weekend so we'll see where that goes but uh until then i am Stu. Thank you, Phil Hager, for a great episode. Uh, And thank you for tuning in. And I am out.